Welcome to another edition of Truth and Rhythm. This is the interview show that gets deep in the pocket with contemporary music's foremost masters of the groove. I am your host, Scott Dr. GX Wolfi. If you enjoy this programming, subscribe to the Funkin' Stuff channel on YouTube, which is where Truth and Rhythm lives, and be an advocate by spreading the word among fellow funk, jazz, and R&B music lovers. Join Truth and Rhythm's membership program through Patreon. You can also submit a direct donation to the cause anytime at funkandstuff.net. At that site, you can also purchase the book, Everything's on the One, The First Guide of Funk. Shop for official Truth and Rhythm and Funk and Stuff merchandise and use the Amazon links for all of your online purchases, which allocates a percentage to this show. For those of you who go the extra step in supporting the show, you have my heartfelt gratitude for allowing us to continue to shine the light on those special artists whose quest is to find truth in rhythm. I'm delighted to welcome to the Truth and Rhythm Mothership funk and jazz saxophonist and flutist Eric Leeds, best known for his extensive work and long association with Prince. From 1986 onward, he appeared on nine Prince studio albums and two live albums, and also worked with associated acts, The Family, Madhouse, Sheila E., Joel Jones, Shaka Khan, George Clinton, Mavis Staples, Wendy and Lisa, Kid Creole and the Coconuts, Carmen Electra, Tevin Campbell, Margie Cox, the new power generation, Maite, and Rosie Gaines. He has also released three solo albums and participated in reunited family albums and shows under the name F Deluxe. Brother of former James Brown and Prince tour manager Alan Leeds, who was a previous Truth and Rhythm guest. In 2017, Eric teamed with Paul Peterson, another past guest on the show on a project titled No Words. I think that about sums it up. Eric, how are you? Good, man. How are you? Glad to be here. Doing well. Yeah, I really appreciate it. And uh, been a fan for so long and uh, way overdue to have you on the show. So thank you. Pleasure is mine. So far, anyway. <laughs> we'll play it by ear, right? Yeah, there you go. So it looks like you're uh, in your archive uh, vinyl room there uh, uh, in Minneapolis, or where are you at? Yep, yep. Um, Bloomington, Minnesota, suburb of Minneapolis. Yeah. Okay. Um, I know that from, you know, the Vikings. I don't know if their current stadium's there, but their old stadium was there, right? The old stadium used to be the old uh, Met, Met Stadium for the Twins used to be in, in uh, Bloomington. In fact, it, the, the Twins Stadium is on the land that now is uh, the Mall of America. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> okay so well hopefully they sell memorabilia in there at least to still honor um, the legacy i'm sure they do yeah 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 well um you know let's jump right in and uh, make the most of our time All so right. uh going uh way back uh eric you know i think uh, you're from milwaukee originally but um you discovered yep. uh, music as a teen growing up in pittsburgh mm -hmm. and um 
Can you tell us a little bit about that and why it became a focal point and why the woodwinds? Well, actually, there, there was a space in between Milwaukee and Pittsburgh. We lived in Richmond, Virginia for seven years. And that's where Alan, my brother Alan's career in radio started. So that's um, actually where I started playing the horn when I was in fifth grade. Um, our family moved to Pittsburgh in 1966. So, so essentially, that's where my career began. Went to high school and music school in Pittsburgh. But, um, you know, my brother Alan was five years older than me, and he was the one that got into this music and passed it down to me, I suppose, wanting to be included in what my older brother was going to be into, you know, may have had a big part, part of it. Um, you know, at first we were into mostly Little Richard, Chuck Berry, Fats Domino, you know, all the, the cats. Um, and then one day my brother brought Ray Charles home <laughs> and, that, and that was my fatal glass beer, you know, the old, his old phrase. Um, there was something about that music, um, more than anything else. And it was always our, our, I think both our, both for Alan and myself, our entrance into jazz because Ray was as much a, you know into jazz as, as, as anything else that he was. And he had this absolutely fabulous, iconic band in the late 50s, early 60s, this small group of saxophonists like Hank Crawford and particularly David Fathead Newman, who was my first absolute love on, on the saxophone. So I basically tell people, you know, I, I can't prove a negative. I can't say how else my interest in music or not may have unfolded. But the way it worked is, I think I'm a musician because of Ray Charles. I'm a saxophone player because of David Fathead Newman. And it just snowballed from there. And before we start recording, I think you mentioned you actually started on alto. And so yeah. at what point did you uh, move to tenor? Well, actually, I, I wanted to play tenor at first because that was Fathead's main instrument, although he, he was a fabulous alto player also. So the first horn that I actually had that my parents rented for me was a tenor. Um, I was a scrawny little kid. To use the old joke, if I turned sideways, I disappeared. Um, I couldn't handle the tenor. It was too big for me. And I, I, I was in fifth grade elementary school band, but I started taking private lessons immediately because I, I wanted to actually, you know, get more out of the experience than, than you were going to get in like an elementary school band at that time. And after a few weeks of struggling to, to cope with this massive instrument, um, my, my teacher said to me, he said, you know, you seem a little frustrated. You might have a little bit better um, result if we scaled things down, why don't you try an alto and see if that fits you better? So I did, and it did. So um, so I started out on alto. The only thing was, um, as the years went by, it never really was my voice. Now, having gone to music school in, in Pittsburgh, Duquesne University School of Music, that was at that time really just a primary classical music school. Um, if you were going to be a saxophone major, you had to major on alto because all of the primary classical saxophone repertoire was geared around alto more than anything else. But in the meantime, I had fallen in love with the baritone. So I then got a baritone when I was in high school. And while I was taking saxophone lessons on alto in music school, 
I played baritone in all of the ensembles in, in symphony band and saxophone quartet and in the jazz ensemble that we did have at, at, at Duquesne University. I was the baritone player. So that became really my main acts as far as like gigging. Then finally, in the early 70s, I said, OK, enough of all this. Um, I want to really play, get back to tenor. So that's when I really started playing tenor. Put the alto in this case, put that to the side. I never really did much with the alto after that. Um, tenor and baritone, those are my loves. So. Mm-hmm. And what was it like for you? How old were you when Alan first got involved with, you know, being a James Brown's tour manager and that kind of thing? Well, let's see. Alan started working for James Brown. Um, I mean, he had known James Brown since 1964, 65, when Alan was literally 17 years old um, or something. Um, yeah, but 18 years old. Whatever. In 1969, Alan would have been 22 and I was uh, 17. So... You know, but like I say, you know, we, we, Alan got into the music literally when he was nine or 10 years old. So I was like five years old when I was exposed to little Richard and Chuck Berry and, and guys like that. So, um, you know, and like I say, by, by the early sixties, we were both heavily in, in, you know, getting into jazz. And I mean, that was really, um, the reason that that I wanted to be a musician was was more than anything was to pursue that music more than anything else. Because as much as I love listening to the R and B and the funk and everything that I'm into, um, in order to really play the horn in the way that I wanted to play it, jazz was really going to be the only music that was going to you know give me the opportunity that in demand to be something more than just you know in a horn section in a pop band or whatever. So. At what point did you uh, decide, um, and maybe later you realized it could actually be reality, uh, that music was going to be your career? Um, really not until high school. I, I, I you know, I, I thought about different things. My, my father was a retail businessman, and while I certainly had certain interests in that, um, wasn't that wasn't a career I was going to pursue. I suppose that I, more than anything else, I was probably thinking about going into law. But by the time I was in high school, I realized that to whatever degree that I had an interest in, in, in the law, it wasn't enough that was going to sustain having to go through college, law school, all that. And I decided by then, you know, this music means so much to me. I guess this is I guess this is where I'm supposed to go. The other thing I learned early on too is I like the hours. <laughs> you know, you know like I sleeping said, in. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I I even then uh, I was a night owl. I mean, during the summertime, I was up late, you know, I I was a night owl. Yeah. So I said, you know, this this maybe maybe this works. So <laughs> um so what were a couple of the first uh, concerts you saw that just really inspired you? Well, the first concerts I saw were R&B, you know, pop concerts. Um, first one that I actually saw was um, Bats Domino and Brooke Benton, you know, whole line in on one of the old package tours that used to, you know, be out on the road in, in you know, through from the 50s and in, in the 60s. Um, saw Ray Charles the first time, I think probably around 1963. 
saw James Brown the first time in 1964. On the pop side, we were already, you know, Alan and I were already in, into James Brown real heavily. So that was the guy. Um, as, as a listener of music, the music of James Brown means as much to me as, as any, of the, any of the jazz artists that I was into. Um, probably saw my first, some of my first jazz gigs around the early, you know, 63. I, th I think I remember we went to see, we were, this is when we were living in Virginia. So we used to go to Virginia Beach during the summertime on weekends. And uh, there was a club there, heard um, jazz trombone, a slide Hampton had, had a band at the time. Um, I didn't know it at the time. The saxophone player that he had that band was a guy named Joe Farrell, who later on, you know, was, uh, you know, a hero of mine for the work that he did with different groups that he was in, particularly Return to Forever and then his own albums. But, um, and, um, well, here, in 1960, I think it was 62 um, or, or 63, um, my, my dad was from New York. So, so my grandmother and my aunt and uncle on my dad's side lived in New York in Jackson Heights in, in Queens. So we used to spend a lot of time there. And in 19, pretty sure it was 63, 62 to 63, um, Alan and I were there. And my aunt and uncle took us to the village gate and you know, we, you could even though we were minors, as long as you were with an adult, you could you could get into the club. And on that night, the headliner was Thelonious Monk and his group. No, I'm sorry, the headliner was Herbie Mann and his uh, group, which at the time was more of an Afro-Cuban group. Thelonious Monk and his group, and the saxophonist Eric Dolphy, and and his group, all on all in one bill. Um, that was probably the first hardcore jazz, you know, experience that I had. And um, yeah, I'm not going to forget that one. You know, saw Dizzy Gillespie years later. And, and by the time, you know, late 60s, would see things like, you know, Count Basie. You know, my dad was a big, big band fan. So we, we used to go see Count Basie and Kessel, that, which was one of my favorite, still one of my favorite bands in all the world. Um, but by the time it's late 60s that Alan was hooked up with James Brown, that was, you know, that was a huge, huge part of, of you know, to have had the opportunity at the age of like 15, 16 to know James Brown, to be able to hang out with James Brown in his dressing room at gigs and to be able to have, to be able to walk around backstage and hear that band. Um, for me, in all of music, when I talk about the bands that, that are so meaningful to me, all of Miles Davis's groups, Weather Report, which was a huge, you know, growing up in the 60s and 70s, um, James Brown's band, particularly the band he had in the late 60s, which really was the laboratory for so much of, of what happened in music after that. They were the cats that invented the music that we call funk. And they had been around that time when that was being invented by that band was, um, you know, as, as wonderful an experience that I could imagine. Um, regardless of what my musical aspirations are and, and jazz and, and whatever, um, there, there rarely is a moment where I can't stop and think, what would James Brown do in this musical situation? 
Because I think James Brown was one of the greatest musical architects in any in any field of music that or any genre you, you could imagine. So to have had the opportunity to have been around that band and James Brown and what they were doing at that time was, was an extraordinary um, opportunity, to, to say the least. And and it it informed so much, if if not every aspect of, of the music that, that I love. Um, you know, I, I kind of look at jazz and R&B and funk as two sides of the same coin for me, you know. So one, you know, I can sit and I could listen to John Coltrane, you know, live at the, at the Village Vanguard sessions or Love Supreme or any of the, you know, the classic Coltrane stuff for hours. And then I can turn around and I can listen to George Clinton for hours. And to me, it's just one, it's just me as a continuum. The other music that we got into around the late 60s, early 70s was Afro-Cuban music, salsa. And that became as big a love affair for me as anything else. My favorite, most biggest hero in all of music for the last 40 years has been Eddie Palmieri, who I have had the opportunity to have known and also played with. So that's that's another, you know, I, I literally could sit here and talk about Eddie Palmieri and his music for hours. So, <laughs> yeah. Well, um... Thank you for that, Eric. Um, let me ask you, though, when you first heard what came to be known as funk, mm -hmm. how did it strike you? Were you like, what is that? You know, or I mean. Well, it it was it was evolutionary, you know, because, you know, people people talk about, you know, James Brown's song Cold Sweat as maybe being the first classic prototype funk record. Um, I wouldn't disagree with that, but if you really want to look at, at, at the gesticulation, that go back a few years to his song Out of Sight, and then in 1965, his song Papa's Got a Brand New Bag. I would say that that is the first song that really laid out the premise of the idea that, you know, the song is one thing, but we really want to get past the song and get to the groove, get to the vamp, because that's where we're going to open things up. And that one song in James Brown's live show um, in the mid-60s became the laboratory for this music we called funk. There are live recordings of, of that song from 1966, where it's kind of just basically what the, you know, the feeling of what the original studio recording was. But by early 1967, that song in James Brown's live show had opened things up and the whole attitude of the rhythm section was starting to evolve. The, the, the syncopation, the angular aspect of, of the guitar players, Jimmy Nolan and Alfonso Kellum, these two absolutely fabulous guitar players that were the, the core of that rhythm section for so many years. And what was happening, and even with the horns, I mean, James Brown's horn section that, at that point in time was, you know, somewhere between seven, eight horns, three, four saxophones, four, you know, three or four brass. And because of that music, every aspect of the band was now concentrating on the rhythm. You know, when you think of music, there are the primary components. There's rhythm, harmony, melody, and an overall structure that maybe, you know, in certain aspects that, that kind of distinguish one genre of music from another. But here was a music in a band that was taking 
the melodic aspect and the harmonic aspect, but concentrating it into the rhythm to a degree that had never really been done before. I mean, you go back to cast like Little Richard and you kind of hear some of the, you know, some of the basic ideas of that because the music, you know, the, it, the music was called rhythm and blues for a reason, you know? But this band and what James was doing was now taking just the, the, the rhythmic aspect to another level. And everything that was going on in the band was now to serve the rhythm. And the, the level of intensity which, with which that was being realized was amping up. So all of a sudden, then here comes this song, this, this record, Cold Sweat. And it was like, oh, shit. That's the one where you start and say, like, coalesced. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. Here it is. And now it's like, and, and, you, you know, there, there's, there's, <laughs> there's a story um, somewhere in a, in, in a book or, or an article about the great producer, Jerry Wexler, who, of course, was the producer behind Aretha Franklin and so many of, of the great R&B artists at that time. And in 1966, 67 is where Aretha Franklin blew up, you know, where all of a sudden she was the biggest thing out there. And James Brown had had, he had gone, he'd gone for about a year without having a huge hit record. I mean, every James Brown record was popular, but he hadn't had a huge hit record. And there was kind of, Otis Redding was now, you know, this, this is, Unfortunately, you know, months before Otis passed away, but Otis was now really peaking also. And there was somewhat of a, a, a notion in, in, in the industry, particularly in the R&B side, that maybe Aretha Franklin, Otis, and what's happened in Atlantic Records, Stax Bolt, Sam and Dave, you know, the Memphis Cats. Maybe this is where the music is going. Maybe James Brown is a little passe at this point. And Jerry Wexler said, you know, as a producer with all of these acts that are blowing up, he's like, you know, he's he's like on cloud nine. He said, I'm the producer. This is what's going on now. He says he's driving home one weekend and all of a sudden he's got the radio on. And all of a sudden here's this new song by James Brown called Cold Sweat. He said he, by the time he got home, he, he went inside and home and he basically says, I sat there and I was just very quiet. You know, it was like you look back in retrospect and you look at that period of time and Cold Sweat, that might be the song that you realize you know, nothing is going to be the same after this, you know, and guess what? Nothing was the same after that. So, yeah. And it still kills even to this day. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So, you know, I want to uh, speed up the timetable a little bit. Um, sure. So could we, we could talk, you know, 24 hours here. So, yeah. um, in a nutshell, Eric, could you describe, you know, where your musical path uh, took you um, before Prince? Well, in, in Pittsburgh, like I say, I, I went to music school and um, I actually went to music school to get an education degree. That That's what they said, you know, you should get a music education degree because you're never going to make it as a musician. You're going to end up teaching music in elementary school. The reason I actually went to take the education degree is because um Getting, getting a degree in music education, the classes, the instrumental method classes that I could take were not available if I was, say, in a conservatory degree. <clears throat> because I wanted to learn 
about all the instruments. So for like, you know, two semesters, I was playing brass instruments. I mean, as a woodwind major, I was, you know, learning the basic of all the woodwinds, flute, which I later, you know, play a little bit, oboe, bassoon, um, clarinet, of course. But then, you know, two semesters of brass, I'm playing, I'm learning how to play the basics of trumpet. I'm playing French horn, I'm playing trombone, tuba, euphonium, all of that. I wanted to take arranging and orchestration classes because I, I wanted to be a writer and an arranger as much as anything else. So anyway, um, getting out of school, it's now I find a gig. You know, um, my parents had moved to Florida by then, so I stayed behind in Pittsburgh. Now I'm, you know, finally an adult on my own. Um, and out there like anyone trying to find a gig. And at that point, you know, um, you're not that choosy. You know, you have your aspirations. I want to play jazz. I had had my first little jazz group um, in Pittsburgh. Um, but, you know, we, we, we take the gigs as, as, as you can. I, I spent the summer um, playing in, in, in a big band that was a, an advertising marketing uh, band for Dodge Motors, of all things. You know, it's called the Dodge Kids. And it was a big band. We used to play like high school gymnasiums in, in, in Pennsylvania, West Virginia, Ohio. You know, it was all to like promote Dodge cars or whatever. You know, I mean, it was, you know, a 14-piece band with like a 12-member chorus. And we're, you know, we're playing medleys of songs by the Carpenters and Neil Diamond and stuff like that. I'm sure they gave um, you free cars. Oh, I, well, they did, but you see, no, none of us wanted them. <laughs> <laughs> they were dodges. <laughs> so, so um, basically, I'm doing that. But, but over a period of time, you know, you you, you gravitate towards the musicians that have a, that are where you want to be. And for I know it, I've got R&B and funk bands, cover bands. So basically, through the '70s and the early '80s, when I was still in Pittsburgh, I'm playing in funk bands and, and, and cover bands. It was, it was the late seventies. It was a great time. If you were going to have like an R and B funk cover band, you had earth, wind and fire at their peak. You had Stevie wonder at their peak. You had cool in the game. You had AWB, you had all of the Philadelphia stuff, the OJs, you know, Harold Melvin, the blue nuts, um, you know, Parliament, you know, obviously George Parliament, Funkadelic, all of that stuff, Bootsy at their best. There was a lot of material. And we used to try to do a lot of different things with it. I, I, I had a band in Pittsburgh for a couple of years called Taking Names. And I was the musical director of the band. And we did all our own arrangements. But we all started writing music, too. The music that we wrote was more instrumental stuff more Weather Report, Miles Davis influence kind of stuff, because that's where our hearts really is, as far as our, our creative aspirations were. So it was kind of a, a hybrid band to that degree. Um, so, you know, that, that's basically what it is. You're out there just, the great thing about it is back in those days, the bands that I was in, we played every night. I mean, li literally, I mean, you, you know, um, normally, we would gig, be gigging 250, 275 nights a year. And that's that's how a band becomes a band. You're playing this shit every night. You know? So that, that's, you know. And on the side, I would do as many jazz gigs as I could, but, you know, you had to earn a living. So if, if, you, if you could call being in a bar band a living, you know.
Did, did you ever think or try to, you know, get sessions work? Yeah, but in a place like Pittsburgh, you know, there, there really, you know, there, there really wasn't a whole lot. I mean, occasionally, you know, there might be a band that would have. Alan, um, at that time, was managing a band in, in Pittsburgh called Black Love that actually um, had become a very, very popular, you know, band in the local music scene. So I did a couple, of, you know, I th they, they recorded a, a, a single, you know, and, and I, I played on that. Um, but, you know, a, a session like that, you know, if you got two or three sessions a year, that was about it, you know. Well, so during that time, Eric, um, you know, even you had uh, some of the, you know, jazz, so-called jazz uh, players, you know, like a Grover Washington gang and funk, you know, on the sax side, and Tom Scott, who's been on the sure. show, uh, got pretty funky. And um, who at that time were you kind of um, admiring or enjoying uh, on the on the funk or the funk jazz side of things? Um. Well, I suppose Sanborn, because he, he, you know, he blew up in the late, you know, late seventies, although I, I first, first got into Sanborn when he, because he was, had been playing with Gil Evans band. Um, I, I really wasn't into um, the instrumental side of, of funk that much. I mean, Grover Washington, sure. I mean, if, look, if you, if you were in a band at that time, you were going to be playing Mr. Magic. You know, I mean, stuff like that. So and, and a bunch of the Sanborn stuff. Um, but I was more, you know, weather report was the gold standard for me. Um, you know, they were rhythmically, they were funk, but they were so much more than just, you know, that. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, they really were a, still a jazz band, but utilizing and Miles. Um you know, from, from the time that he started, you know, playing what became known as fusion in a silent way, bitches brew, that's the stuff that really defined my aspirations as much as anything else. And by the mid-70s, Miles had one of the greatest funk bands in the world with Reggie Lucas and Al and Pete Cozy and those guys. And, I, you know, at a time when very few people, in, uh, you know, the jazz bands had written Miles off by then. But since I was into funk as much as I was into jazz, to me, that band was just absolutely fabulous. I mean, I loved that band. So, um, and Maceo, you know, as, as far you know, if you're going to play a saxophone in this music, then Maceo Parker is still, once again, the gold standard. And the fact that I had known Maceo and, you know, had the opportunity to be around him when he was still with James Brown in the 60s and early 70s. By the time he's with George Clinton and all that, you know, it's like, OK, this this is, you know, he that that was still that was still the shit, you know. So, um, you know, but but by, by the time I stepped into a studio of Prince for the first time in 1984, um, what. Prince needed me to do to serve what his music. I had already been doing that for 15 years, you know. And if from all of the, you know, I could sit here and I could, I could, I could talk about 30 or 40, you know, just to start 40 or 50 jazz saxophonists that, you know, that 
are a part of, of, of my education. But from, from to serve the more pop, R&B, funk-influenced side of things, the, for me, the book was written by guys like Lee Allen, who played with Fats Domino and, and Little Richard, Fathead with, with Ray Charles, um, Maceo, and King Curtis, who was, you know, there was hardly an R&B song during the 50s and 60s. If there was a saxophone solo on it, it was liable to be King Curtis as much as anybody else. So that vocabulary, they kind of wrote the instruction book as far as I'm concerned. So basically, to whatever degree that I was familiar with that instruction book, having played that kind of music for as long as I had, that's all I needed to be able to step into Prince's world and be able to basically do any and everything that I ever needed to do with Prince. It all came from everything that I had already been doing for, for years. So, Yeah. Um, so was it Alan that introduced you to Prince? Um, yeah. And um, how did mm -hmm. that introduction go? Well, by then I, I was living in Atlanta. I'd left Pittsburgh in, in 1983 and I was living in Atlanta. I really wasn't doing a whole lot. I, I moved to Atlanta because I just decided it was time to get out of Pittsburgh and I wanted to go south where it's a little warmer. Um, so I was just doing a bunch of pickup gigs around Atlanta, not much. Alan had been working with Prince for uh, about a year already um, as Prince's. Uh, when they were on the road, Alan was the road manager. When they were not on the road, Alan was the office manager. He was pretty much the cheapest staff. There was, you know, there was nothing in Prince's organization that didn't come through Alan's desk, pretty much. Um, Prince one day, um, well, everybody that knows the Prince saga knows that um, the group The Time, which was Prince's band as much as anything else, even though Prince didn't perform with The Time, but it was his band. Um, they were breaking up. Morris Day was leaving the camp. He was going out on his own. And um, Prince still apparently wanted to have a side project that he could produce and write for that would be, you know, a, a, another avenue for his musical expression. So he came up with the idea of what became the group The Family. And he's talking about this idea about, okay, Morris is out. I'm going to see you. If anyone left in the time wants to, I'll morph it in. I'll put a new lead singer, Paul Peterson. Um, I'll move the music a little sideways a little bit. So still want to keep it as kind of an R&B, funk-influenced pop band. Maybe a little more pop than the time, but still with the current of, of you know, funk un underneath everything. Um, and apparently he mentioned that he was interested in having a saxophone in this music, which was apparently the first music that he had ever considered using any horn in at all. Alan, of course, heard this and told Princess, I, I assumed that asked Princess, do you have anybody in mind yet? Because if you don't, um, I have somebody I'd like you to listen to. Um, so uh, Alan gave Prince a cassette probably of me from one of my bands, I suppose. I don't even know if Alan remembers specifically what it was. Anyway, Alan called me and told me all about this and said, um, Prince wants you to come up here and do a session with him for, the, for, for this music that he's doing with this group that's going to be called The Family. And my 
initial reaction was, um, what's the music into it? Is there anything I'd like? <laughs> you know, I was not a, I was not particularly a fan of Prince's music. You know, um, so I didn't have any particular excitement about it. There was nothing about it that I said, oh boy, I'm going to be playing with Prince. Nothing, nothing like that. It was like, um, all right, I'll come up and do the session. That's, you know, that's, that, that's, that's where it started. So, so uh, did you uh, meet Prince? Uh, how did you first meet him? Um, I remember I, I flew up from Atlanta to, to the Twin Cities. I have to give a, another side story, just just a premise. Um, coincidentally, my mother was born and brought up in St. Paul, Twin City in Minneapolis. She had moved to New York when she was young to go to NYU, and that's where she met my father, who was from New York. So anyway, when so her family, her father and her sister's family was still in, in, in the Twin Cities. So we used to come to Minneapolis when, when we were kids and visit. So I had, you know, I had a background family tied to the Twin Cities. When my mom learned about this artist named Prince that Alan had started working for and was interested in, my mom was somewhat worldly in that, you know, even though she grew up in St. Paul, you know, like I said, she, at a young age, she went to New York. Um, she took one look at this guy, Prince, and, and laughed and said, what the hell is this? And she said, wait a minute, excuse me. You're telling me this is going to be like maybe the next big thing in, in pop music, and he's from Minneapolis? You know, the whole thing was very funny to her. So anyway, the fact that what I was looking forward to more than anything else in coming up to Minneapolis was you know, I haven't been up there for almost 15 years. I haven't seen my cousins or my aunt and uncle in like close to 15 years. This is going to be great. They're going to fly me up. I'll, I'll hang with Alan and, and his girlfriend, his, later his wife, Gwen, who I hadn't seen in a while either. I'm going to have a great time with my family. And oh, yeah, I'll do this session with, this, with Prince. And maybe he'll put enough money in my pocket to sustain me for a few weeks. I can sit up in and hang. So that's really what I was looking forward to. So anyway, I fly up. I think it was a Sunday night. I flew up. The next day, Monday, was the schedule for, for, for this session. So literally, it was the next afternoon. Um, at, you know, Paisley Park Recording Studios had not been built yet. You know, that hadn't even begun yet. So Prince basically rented a, a warehouse, which he had a uh, a studio kind of set up in um and that that's where the um offices were and everything you know that, that's where they worked out of so basically and it was in the suburb of of the minneapolis out in shanhassen not even eden prairie is where it was so basically the session was scheduled for i guess you know mid-afternoon we went out there um i got my horn out Warmed up a little bit, sat there, waited for a while. Um, Prince was late. You know, I got used to that idea that anything, you know, generally speaking, he might be late. Um, Prince came in. 
We're in this big warehouse where the studio, you know, the control board and tech machines are set up. And I had already met his engineer, Susan Rogers. And um, Alan, I had my horn, was sitting there. Alan introduced me to Prince. Prince and my brother Eric, Eric, this is Prince. How you doing? Prince looked at me and he said, um, I've got three or four, I've got four songs that we could, that tracks that I have ready to go. And he said, I could give you a cassette of them if you want to take a day or two and get familiar with them. And my reaction to that myself was, I, I didn't want to do that. I didn't want to have homework. You know, it was like, oh, now, I, now I'm on the hook for something more than I was expecting. I, I just kind of smiled and I said, well, I could do that if that's what you would prefer. But I'm ready to go if you are. And Prince kind of looked at me and smiled and said, all right, let's go. And that was that. You know, Prince sat down behind the control board with Susan. They had a microphone set up. Here's the first track. This is what I need you to do. Blah, blah, blah. An hour and a half, two hours later, we had four tracks and done. That was it. And what, what, which of those tracks ended up on the record? All four of them on the, on the family album. So they mut were, mutiny um, and. Um, I can, in fact, I, I, I can tell you the order we did them in. Um, <clears throat> first song was um, the song Desire. Then we did Mutiny. No, then we did High Fashion and Mutiny. And then the instrumental that, that, in, that on the album was called Susanna's Pajamas. Those were the four tracks which we did that day. Now, the vocals that were on there was not Paul yet. It was Prince. It was all Prince's books. You know, it was his guide vocals for Paul later. I didn't meet Paul or anybody else in the band till day till a couple weeks later, I think. Um, so we did we did those four songs, and then um, that was the end of that. You know, he I Prince gave me a cassette of them, a rough mix of the cassette. Gave me he said here, you know. I said all right, thank you. Um, put a check in my pocket, which was very nice. <laughs> and you know, I had no expectations or illusions about what what necessarily was going to happen next, um, because first of all. Purple Rain was just coming out. So everything, you know, he had bigger fish to fry. And knowing that, like a lot of pop artists, but particularly what Alan had already kind of, you know, give me in a background of Prince was that Prince is somebody that can change his mind like we change underwear. So the fact that he had four songs in, in the, you know, ready to go for a project the from what i recall there was no timetable yet as to when this project was going to be ready for release so i'm saying you know between now and whenever this whole thing could go away you know so i'm just saying you know i did a recording session i got paid that might be the end of this fine if that's the way it is you know what the hell if the session got paid move on to the next um so i had stayed in minneapolis to hang out with family um Prince apparently had called Alan and asked, is, is your brother still in town? And he said, yes, he is. He said, um, I got another song for him to do. 
came in the next day and it was nothing compares to you. Um, so put the solo on that. And I think we did another session. Yeah, we did another session for a song that was called Feline that was never released. It never went on the album. It's, it's in the vault somewhere. I'm sure everybody who has bootleg you know, collections has it, I'm sure. Um, you know, so I'm up here for a few weeks, did those sessions, then I went home to Atlanta. And, you know, as far as I'm concerned, they said, now he's, you know, he's gearing up for Purple Rain, the tour and everything. So I'm just saying, whatever happens next, happens next. I don't know. So, <laughs> you know, that, that, so, it, you know, the whole involvement was incremental like that. So. So at what point did it become apparent that you were going to be, uh, you know, very involved? Um, when he went out on tour with the Purple Rain tour, um, they were playing, this is now November of 84. Purple Rain obviously was the biggest thing out there right now. The tour was off the hook. You know, everything was just, you know, all the stars and planets were lined up for him. Um, he, the, the, the tour was playing in Greensboro, North Carolina. So I, I had been planning to drive from Atlanta to Florida to spend Thanksgiving with my parents. So I detoured through Greensboro to see the show. I had never seen Prince perform live yet. So I detoured through, they, they were there for two or three nights. Anyway, I had my horn with me because I was taking it with me just to have, have it with me in, in Florida so I could practice, play the horn at you know, my parents' place. Um, Prince asked if I had my horn with me. I said, yes, I can. He said, come on up and sit in with us. And I said, well, you, you know, this isn't like a jam session. This isn't like a club gig. This is like a, an arena tour in front of 15,000 people. I said, what, in, what do you want me to do? And he said, we did the song Baby I'm a Star, which is one of the encores. And it's an open, and we open it up, and there's kind of a jam part of it. He said, Come, I'll bring you up on that. And I'll just let you go. I'll be off dancing, you know, routines or whatever. Just play. Whatever the hell you want to play. You got it. So I basically, you know, I, I gotta tell you, I had never listened to any of the Purple Rain album yet. I was familiar with When Doves Cry, you know, but I, I wasn't into that music. So it wasn't something that I was going to sit and listen to, you know. So I asked him, I said, um, what key is it in? And I, th I think I think I, I think it's in D. I, I mean, you know, Prince fans would probably know. I think it was in D. So, all right, you're just in the key of D. All right. So I'm, I'm wearing jeans and like a, a shirt like this. So I'm, I'm hardly appropriately dressed for you know so prince tells wardrobe find something for him to wear so they threw a fur coat on me and a big hat they had a microphone up there behind you know kind of in dark there was no spotlight on me or anything you know I, I come up and and that was that so after you know i did that went went on to, anyway by Early 1985, he had brought me out on a couple other gigs to just play on Baby I'm a Star. Then finally, 
Alan said, um, I, I played a few gigs, went home to Atlanta. They were going to be on the West Coast playing L.A., San Francisco, all of that. And Alan said, Prince wants you to come up to L.A. to be, you know, to be around for the shows then. But he said, the tour has another like month and a half. I think Prince wants you to stay out with the rest of the tour. Yep, so the LA, I, came, I just throw in the LA Forum is the one that I saw because I was in LA at that time. So you're probably okay. at that yeah. show. Yeah. Those were the first ones, yeah, that I had permanently and after that. And then by then, um, my there was more stuff that he wanted me to play on. So by then, I was playing on Baby, I'm a Star. I was playing on, um, God, I don't even remember. There was some uh, some other songs that, that in, in the middle of the show. That, oh, um, Irresistible Bitch. He was doing that some nights, you know. So he would open up and I'd come on. So I was coming on, on uh, off the stage maybe two or three times now during the gig. But you got to understand, there's no spotlight on me. I'm not a member of the band. I'm literally there completely for Prince's pleasure. I don't know. You know, you know that, that's all it is. So, um, you know, the tour ends. Now the family album is now done and is actually going to be released. I mean, finally by, you know, mid-85. So by then, I'm back in Minneapolis um, all during 80, summer of 85, and we're in rehearsals for what was supposed to be some kind of tour with the family later on that year. And by then now, by then now, I'm in it, you know. <laughs> I think he did mutiny on some of those Purple Rain shows too. Yeah, we we sometimes jam on that, or he would take that line. He, sometimes he would take the line, the 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 horn figure, and just put it anywhere else. You know, like we might play controversy, and he'd say, "We're going to play controversy." Eric, play the mutiny line on that. So, All right, whatever. You know, that, that was that was pretty much it. Short story is, I'm sure you know that the family. After the album came out, Paul decided to leave, go out on his own. At that point, then Prince asked me to just join his band full time, and that's that's all she wrote. <laughs> so around '86, you became um, full time. Yeah, yeah. Um, it was late '85 that Prince had made the decision to 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 add horns to the band, expand the band, and then in '86 is when when you know that band went out on tour for the first time. You know what was known as some people called it the expanded revolution. Um, there were those of us that referred to it as the counter revolution. There's much more to this great truth and rhythm interview. Just continue on to the next part of the episode. Also, be sure to subscribe to this channel. If you've already done so, please share it with friends and become a member by joining Truth and Rhythm on Patreon or consider donating at funkinstuff.net. Thank you very much.